0: Dr. Umang Patel is the Managing Director of NHS Services at Babylon Health, the UK health tech unicorn valued at over $2 billion, as well as being a practicing pediatrician. We talk about his story, how he's managed to stay in medicine whilst working at Babylon, and I poke a bit at Babylon's validation. And finally, Umang gives some amazing advice on how to navigate the business world and create your own story. He's a really cool doctor with a great story and tons of really useful advice, so I think you're going to enjoy this episode a lot. Could you give me your story from, say, medical school to current day? Like, how have you got to where you are?
1: So I identify mainly as a paediatrician. So I sort of went to Southampton Medical School, um, started when I was um, just 18, I think, and, you know, graduated at 22 and, and very much enjoyed being a doctor. So quick story before that, I'm a second generation Asian. We grew up above a corner shop. It, it was a fairly traditional story um, and always loved the idea of getting into medicine and, and being able to um to fulfill that goal. Um at medical school, um quickly identified you wanting to go into pediatrics. Uh, I've got a little brother who's 11 years younger. I quite like being around kids and I just loved the the vibe on pediatric wards where you know you're all aligned about getting patients home, the high turnover and you know you can have water fights. So I think you know where better to spend your day. Um, following graduation, so graduated from Southampton, I did my house job in Poole and um uh, and uh, enjoyed that. And then after that, I was thinking, well, where do I go to next? Uh, ended up coming up towards London um, and without going through each step of the journey, ended up at St. Mary's, um, so Imperial. Um, and found myself very luckily in a, a group of doctors, some more senior than me, but also the cohort that I was in that sort of have now gone on to do some, some great things. And there was this real vibe of saying, well, let's see what we can do. Um, to really embed ourselves in the future of paediatrics. And I remember being part of that and having that classic imposter syndrome and going, well, I don't really deserve to be here. You know, all of the challenges you have? Like I didn't graduate from a London university. Am I really good enough for this stuff? And what occurred to me was um, that really where I could offer most value was not being the academic and, and going off and doing the research in paediatric TB and, and others, like, you know, I was doing the infectious diseases job at the time at St Mary's but really being quite pragmatic about how we got stuff done um, and got what the service needed. And I remember talking to my clinical supervisor at the time. He said, you know what, Yuang, one of the problems I've got is that um, I'm one of the world's best experts at paediatric HIV. but I have no idea how to get what we need when I go up against the orthopedic surgeons who are able to write business cases and get stuff done. And I remember thinking, well, maybe that's where I can add the most value so maybe what we actually need is somebody that can understand how the service runs and what we need to do that and and sort of long story short that kicked off a bit of a leadership career um so i wondered about well how can i go and get more skills around that where can i get involved in that And st mary's and especially that crew were very um supportive and spinning forward a little bit that led me to doing a leadership fellowship with the um national um sort leadership academy uh which was great too I, I got my post-grad certificate in medical leadership or whatever it was at the time with the king's fund and um the universities of birmingham manchester and one of the things that struck me having done that year um having completed that uh, accreditation was that it was still very academic and, and what i really craved was going back and becoming something more impactful in the system so i spent spent quite a lot of time talking to chief executives of, NHS hospitals, Um, and broadly they would say, look man, we love your enthusiasm, but money's our burning platform, we need um, more accountants, less clinicians running services to try and solve that problem. I thought that was quite a sad state of affairs to be in, and my working hypothesis was it would be easier for me to learn how to use Excel than it would be for them potentially to go and learn how to sort of be a sort of SHO in A&E at 4am. So I thought long and hard about, well, where should I go to to understand these skills? And, and again, I sort of, long story short, ended up at Aviva, the insurance company, um, where, uh, my like I said, my working hypothesis was, well, how do I go and learn how to use Excel? Where better than an insurance company? And, and you know, I had this job there that, I, that was really interesting. And the, the intent there was, I thought, well, if I can learn how money flows through a healthcare economy, the NHS is incredibly complicated, but maybe it'll be easier for the, smaller population that have either served um, with their health insurance for example then we could sort of start building up a bit of a basis for how we could then improve things um, so I ended up there um, and brilliantly and I'll have to credit my wife on this but she said look you love being a pediatrician say so before you throw it all away and I know you want to go off and try and do something different um, why don't you just ask if you can um, keep a day a week being a doctor and I said no you can't do that nobody does that and she said, look, just ask, right? You like doing it. What You know, what's the worst that could happen? And I, and I went and spoke to him before I got the job. And I said, look, can I, um would that be okay? And brilliantly, my boss said to me, um, he said, look, to be honest, man, we just care about if you get the job done or not. If you don't, if you don't get the job done, we're fine. So sort of do what you want. Which was this brilliant sort of private sector way of going, you know, do what you need to do, but you know, make sure you uh, you get the job done. So hence keeping a day a week working at Trimley Park, um, where uh the clinical team um were very supportive of me coming in and doing that which was fantastic and that sort of allowed me to do this four day one day split uh, early on into my viva career i met ali Parser. he founded babylon um i did my sort of personal pitch you know my elevator pitch about who i was and what i was about and he said you know what Look, when you're bored of working for an insurance company you should come and join me wouldn't it be called if we just got on with it. Let's start using technology to really make things better. Um, I'm building a small team around this yet to be announced um, app and and service called Babylon. Uh, I think it'd be a lot of fun. Let's keep in touch. And then here I am five and a half, six years later.
0: I'm interested in two parts of that. So the first part is you said that quite early on when you were in PEDS, you ended up in a group of kind of like-minded individuals who all um, were kind of doing amazing stuff. So yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Like where did they all end up?
1: And so when I reflect back on that time, there's this, this great group of people and it's you know, it one of my favorite teams to be part of. So um, I, I think objectively for this podcast, although I don't necessarily mean that he is the most successful out of it, but Bob Claber, who's now I think either deputy director or or one of the management board at Imperial um, was my registrar uh, when I was a junior. Um, uh, the other consultants that were there, people like Mandy Watson and, and so on. And for people that aren't listening to this in London, these names don't necessarily mean anything, but they really led services that have changed pediatrics in London. And, and what they gave me was this ability to really think um, that you could get involved with stuff that wasn't just service delivery. So it was all about saying, they have all of these problems how do we how do we as a group try and challenge them hermione lyle was a clinical director that i talked about um earlier um so there, there was a good senior quorum and I, I remember there was this um one handover when we'd got a, a referral from somebody else and um uh I, I won't name the people involved in case i shouldn't but the um i, I remember the the culture was we something bad had happened and the, the reg that was on um, felt empowered enough to pick up his phone and go, well, I know that guy. I'll just phone him. And it, it was basically about another doctor being a bit crappy to one of our team in a referral, as you guys will. You know, hopefully people listening to this will have felt, but not too often. And the culture was, well, I'll just phone that person and point out that that wasn't the way to do it. And I thought that was brilliant because all too often we just ignore the problem. So like, oh, like it's okay, maybe they're having a bad day and we just eat it. But slowly that erodes the culture that we need to build in teams. I, just, I remember that so vividly where he picked up the phone, and the guy, and said, "Look, you know, I'm sure you're really busy on other stuff, but I just wanted to let you know that this is then what happened." And I thought it's, it's taking that culture of I'm going to make a change, even if they're small. And I think that's that's the group that we're in um my peer group in that uh, have all gone off to be way more successful than me um one of them is now a professor of something pediatric in australia and you know i, I read of interest the papers they support and stuff but was a real i feel very lucky to have been part of that group um and i think many ways the beginning of my career was trying to think out how i fit within that group but like i said culturally it was very much a let's get on and try and solve these problems and one of my fears about medicine currently today is that um especially when we're say, busy delivering services, um, and we sometimes feel quite disempowered trying to create that culture of empowerment. So if we can do it amongst ourselves, um, then I know we can, you know, generally there are great people and we can do great things. But when we do feel disempowered, um, it's quite hard to, to rise out of that in order to make change happen.
0: That's really cool, and it sort of reminds me of the you know the PayPal Mafia where you've got like Elon Musk, Paul Graham, all these people working together and they've all gone off to do cool stuff themselves, so, yeah yeah, that's interesting I,
1: w- I would say I mean to the listeners of this if I reflect back on it, there was definitely something about the group that you 're in, and I think medicine i don't know if it's unique or not, um but you do build such strong relationships, and almost everybody goes on to do great things, and we all have those challenges of not feeling that what we're doing are great um. But I do really enjoy keeping in touch with people from before and knowing that they can just phone up. I I got a a text message from somebody that I hadn't spoken to in at least a decade saying, um, I've just had this idea and I I just thought you might be able to help me. And I I think holding on to that is really important. And there's something nice in paediatrics about that, I think, um, that we've always had a very MDT, team-based approach. Um, I can't speak for other specialties. But I think that's something really important to to healthcare, and as doctors, I think we need to keep hold of that. So a lot of what we do at Babylon is um, it's about saying, well, as a clinical voice, right, we're leading a clinical service. In fact, the first thing I said to Ali was, I don't understand why an investment banker gets to run a hospital group when he was running Circle, um, and he was like, he laughed at me, and he went, well, that's why we need you to come and you know be part of the team so we can build on the next thing. And like, there's something about trying to make sure that you you work towards the skills that you've got not try to do it all and and form the teams around you support networks around you that can allow us to achieve um, the things that we need to achieve
0: amazing the second part of your story i was quite interested in is the fact that you've kept um, a clinical day um, throughout your career most people i speak to who are similar to you i think they usually talk about having to leave medicine so can you talk about the pros and the cons that have come from keeping that day
1: yeah absolutely i, I it's funny when i go in on a friday sometimes the team that i talk they gave this is just your hobby because i i bound in and it and it this concept of a portfolio career but really i love the fridays i mean i'm not emailing i'm not doing it's just a, a difference and a, a, you know really is important to get on and, and again it's helpful for pediatrics for all other reasons that you can imagine so high turnover you can do pediatric A and, and 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 get stuff done and um, i think the advantages are huge and I would definitely recommend it So anybody I've ever spoken to or mentored we've done that i massively recommend doing it of course the difficulty with that is you always recommend what you've done because that's what's worked for you um, the reason that's worked for me I think it's really kept me leveled so as I've gone more into the businessy type world so I've done you know, obviously Babylon and Aviva or any of the other bits that have been my alternative career path Um two things that have been really helpful one is is ensuring credibility. So I enjoy, and I can speak with confidence about being an actual doctor and understanding what the problems are. Um, and, and I think that's really important, so that people can follow you, especially when you start taking leadership roles. So it's something about having the experience of that, which I'm not saying you can't have if you've got that and then leave. But it it's been definitely been helpful to to have had it. So I think one challenge is if you're if you're junior and thinking about leaving, I wonder if you've built up enough experience to be able to have that. And, you know, obviously if you get more senior, then there are lots of things that that may or may not factor into that. Um, And the the second part of it is because it it makes everything else, if you stay in a healthcare setting at the very least, um, incredibly real. So if you think about what we're doing with Babylon, um, like you've probably heard about Babylon because we do AI and really cool stuff. And you've seen, you know, we've got all of these data scientists that build amazingly good products. And then on a Friday, I'll be sat there going, um i mean last week for example one of the shas was telling me i was like can you pull up those results for me and they were like yeah and it took ages i was like oh you know is the computer not working i don't know the computer's working it's just the keyboard isn't so they were clicking into the handover sheet cutting and pasting you know basically getting around it by using the mouse and uh, you know having that juxtaposition makes you really realize okay look it's great to have all the ai we definitely need to get that but there's also some stuff we need to do to get you know off the ground uh, and so being able to have those two views i find incredibly useful um the downsides are that it um you i i, I think this is true of anybody that does multiple roles is there's you know you can never really sandbox one thing to being a single day so do you know what i don't only get to do 20 percent of my mandatory training i have to do it all um, and all of that stuff so you do have to be aware that if you do do something like that then it's a a commitment in time that you have to um find time for you know obviously that has trade-offs
0: is there is there a fear of well this is just me just projecting what my fear would be doing something like you're doing onto you but is there a fear of like de-skilling that you're only doing one day a week and then um you're not going to be as on the ball clinically
1: yeah yeah, really there really is i so i suppose i i left medicine to do part-time when i'd got to registrar level um and I operate at middle grade level. So I think, um, and the importance of that, so when I, when I was thinking about leaving and every consultant I spoke to pretty much said, no, no, just make sure you finish com- complete CCT and then you can do what you like. And at, at the risk of just making my past narrative fit where I've got to now, the, the advantage of not operating at consultant level means that there's always that cover. So, you know, like I always, I remember when I first, when I was, when I was a medical student, I had this SHO um, and I remember, or Reg, I can't remember, but, you know, I was following him around as a medical student and I remember saying, do you know what, really, I'm really worried I'm never going to know as much as you know. Like, I'm never going to get there. Like, you know, know, I really don't think this is, for me, you know, like, I'm I'm never going to be as good as you. And he said, you know what the trick is? Um, The trick is you've only ever got to be a really good house officer. Like, you've only just got to be vaguely better than you are at what you're currently doing. So, um, and that's a view that I take. So, um, I am not the world's best paediatrician, but clearly. um, But what I am able to do is play my part in that. And there's something about having the confidence where, you know, that's outside of my competency or I need to be able to um, be mature enough to accept that, do you know what, because of what I've chosen to do, I need to ask for help or put people in a a different direction. So there's, there's something about having that awareness that I think is important.
0: That's really uh, reassuring. So from going as a medic into largely the business world, what kind of, what kind of things have you learned and how have you had to change?
1: um <laughs> good, good question so i think um do you ever see that thing it went around that, you know, what i act what people think i do and what i actually do like i, yeah, I had yeah. that a slide once and I, I used to share it when i was talking to medical students or, or juniors um um so, so uh, importantly i think there are some core elements that you learn during medicine that are vital for business um a lot of that are are the so you know understanding problems, solving problems, and taking responsibility are core. Cool. So I think you are well-grounded as a medic to move into other areas. Um, the, the differences though are that it's a very different mindset at times. So, you know, there, is, there isn't a, I fix this patient and then that gets done, you know, projects last much longer, you know. So I'm pretty sure everybody listening will hate doing an audit, but that is basically you know like a project is like well i've got to you know start something and then see it through so there are different ways of balancing the time which are important um the other the other one is that you are always tied to a very different objective and there's something about not being when you're a, a clinician being more in control of that objective on a day-to-day basis even if you don't necessarily feel that you can steer the trust or whatever in one direction or not um there's something in business about making sure you know where you fit into the the overarching organization. And then um, the final big difference that I've noticed is that as as an NHS, it has a yes, every single team and every single hospital or every single GP practice has a a specific feel um or culture. Generically the baseline is pretty standard. Whereas you know if I compare Aviva to Babylon, like they're they're drastically different. So there's something about being able to adapt to that. So um, you can very easily Go and them in one hospital to another hospital and generally fit in and get along, as an example. Um, whereas when you start thinking about entering into business, do you have to spend more time thinking about what your fit's going to be? And i cancel that finding if you are thinking about going into something, spend do your due diligence because it's not going to be anywhere near as easy as you think it is to go from one place to another. And you think, well, I can do that because I'm always changing teams, I'm always. Whereas, really you do have to do your homework find out about the organization you're going into spend lots of time talking to people about it um so that you know that when you do go into it you'll you'll know where to fit in and and, and be very clear about what you need to achieve and what your objectives are uh, and so on
0: so if you let me make a false binary so there's medics and then there's like business people what do medics do well compared to business people and what do they do poorly um
1: Oh, taxing question. I wonder if this will come back to bite me, but I think, so I think medics do really well on, on emotional intelligence. So we're we're generally good at being um, good with clients and other people and, and, and leading, I think we're, we're good at leading stuff. I'd say we're not very good at general day-to-day management because, you know, other than writing lots of lists with boxes, half colored in next to them, like we don't really get trained that in the way that somebody might have done if they'd done a more traditional um, business route. And um, so with that, I think the other challenge that medics often have is that we have a slightly different view to the world. So, you know, as doctors, we generally are told we're great and we've done, and we're really valuable. And, you, you know, we're, it's generally very good positive views that people come through. Um, and i think sometimes when you take that into business it, you, you, it, it's hard to make sure that you stay humble enough to not really believe you're in hype Right? So, i think mean, there's quite a lot of people that come in and they'll be like but i'm a doctor and therefore i can or i should have done that so that's something to counsel against and even though individuals don't display that very often overtly, as a cohort i know it's quite challenging for organisations, sometimes when they're dealing, if I talk to friends that sometimes they realise that I'm a doctor, if you like, because I'm doing, I've got a business suit on. Um, we'll often sort of have the odd comment about we're well, working with doctors that there is a challenge that there's a there's a sort of base arrogance of but we know we can do that. We need to counsel. And then the other problem is because we've not really had that because you'll always sort of do this, do the next thing, and then progress. Um, I don't think as clinicians we're very good at understanding proper performance management in organizations um you know and that's definitely something when you work for a big insurance company or you, you work for a startup where you've got to you've got to justify your seats. um it, you know like for babylon the experience has been very much that we're on a mission um it's not you know we've got to make sure that everybody is playing their part the maximum bit is a is very different to say when you're in the nhs which is like well okay like sort of as long as I sort of generically tick all of the boxes, I'll progress and move on. So that, that's a that's a different skill set.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your work at Babylon? What do you do day to day?
1: So w- when I started at Babylon, there are about 10 of us, give or take. Mm-hmm. And, um, and um, my job back then was, okay, so how do we start engaging hospitals? Because clearly, hospital clinician, um, how do we, um, how do we, you you know, go and engage them and, and and do more secondary, tertiary care type services using technology. Um that lasted about a day before we realized that well we didn't really have any users of primary care. So the stepping stone of primary care. Um so I got up, walked around the desk, sat next to our commercial um lead, um, was a great guy called Rabin, who came from Google, and he said, and, and I said, look, you know, how do we start getting users? Because I can't do the job I need to do until we've got people using the service. And, and since then I've sort of sat, if you like, on that commercial side. So I'd say my job is really about finding populations of people that we can best use our technology for. And then crucially trying to prove that it works for them. Um, right now I'm focused in on uh, the NHS. So um, it's So I, I sort of now manage the NHS team uh, where we look at well, what can we do more for the NHS building, or what we've already done to be able to find even sort of sort of more diverse groups of populations of people. So, you know, you'll see stuff coming out in diabetes, for example. You'll see stuff coming out uh, with the integrations between primary and secondary care. And you know, my role would be going well. How do we start trying to flesh out what these problems are? Um, understand where the Babylon technology and platform can best fit. Make sure that it gets implemented. And then hopefully be able to showcase it back to the NHS as a as a use case. that so can say, "Well, we next should now do more of that."
0: From what I've read about Babylon, there's been criticism of Babylon's validation. I think you've had two internal trials, um, kind of uh, comparing the Babylon AI um, to clinicians. I guess the criticism has been that there's not been any independent trials of Babylon's AI. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, it's, it's been a fascinating experience. having with Babylon, I, and I remember. Um, it almost feels like whichever way you cut it you'll never you'll never satisfy everybody and, and and that's sort of the way that it should be right so whenever you're trying to be um disruptive and we are trying to be positively disruptive and i don't think anybody especially now we've had covid you know we're incredibly proud that if we hadn't have led the charge and made it more widespread um you know would we' have be been such a good place to have dealt with the crisis so we're proud of what we've achieved but i remember really vividly very early on in in um, my days at Babylon, um, going to a meeting, I can't remember who it was, it, so it was NHS people and, and some other um, academics. And so before we even started doing AI, so this was purely about just telemedicine. And um, and them saying to me, okay, we well, haven't got any evidence in order to be able to suggest that we should do this. And I'm like, well, here's a load of evidence, here's what's happening in the US, here's what, you know. But, but fundamentally, ignoring evidence, right, we don't have enough doctors to be able to deliver face-to-face appointments, so like romantically, absolutely, I would love it if there was enough you know, service to deliver against demand. But pragmatically, there just isn't. So is there a way, you know, we have to try something. And, and then I, I remember saying to them, so how much evidence, like what do you need? Like, give me a number, like, do you need 5,000 appointments? And I said, okay, yeah, yeah about that. So off I went, got the number of appointments, came back, showed them the feedback and others. And then they said, nah, still not enough evidence. And it just, you know, there was a thing going, okay, well, what do you want now, 50,000? And my, my feeling was that we were hiding behind, I think, the, the like, I'm not quite sure where to put this, so I'll keep sort of kicking it into the long grass, asking for more evidence. And, of course, if anything brand new, you're going to have to take a bit of a leap of faith. What we suddenly realised when we needed the AI was, well, the cost of the doctor behind a computer screen is the same as the cost of a doctor sat behind a desk, right? So you'll pay your expertise. And we are still wayfully short of any clinician. Um, you know the number of clinicians being able to, to serve the world's needs, and when you think about our global aims to bring it to life with a bit of a story, um, in Rwanda where we went live after the UK is our second country. and Talk a bit about that, perhaps. Um, there are 11 million citizens, but only about 1,000 doctors. So there is no way that doctor population can cover the um, number of people that they've got, and so you have to think about new ways of delivering care. In fact, just to finish off the Rwanda story, uh, apparently in Rwanda, there are 18 million mobile phones. I was told that they've got more mobile phones uh, in their country than they have toothbrushes. Mm. I don't know how they found that out, but clearly, if you're gonna start building services again, and that's the way of the world, you have gotta start thinking about, well, how do you best use what you've got in order to be able to satisfy that population's health needs? Um, That's what led us on to doing AR. So you go, well, okay, so there's never gonna be enough doctors, so now I need to start thinking about the best technology um, that's available today to be able to deliver parts of that service in a way that's safer and effective um, and also whilst we're doing safe and effective care which of course have to be the, the tenants you can't go be- below you know that's where the bar set um, can we also improve the experience Can we make healthcare more personalized and you know that's where we've then got to some of the stuff that you've seen about Babylon and AI and trying to use technology to do that then everybody said okay well we're a bit scared about ai so we now need you to do something to try and showcase um if it's safe and effective and we said well okay we don't quite know how to do that we absolutely want to publish peer-reviewed journals but it becomes a chicken and egg situation right so i can't get users to be peer-reviewed journals and you know until we, we start developing the services and delivering them um so what we did was really the robust processes that we tried to put in place to make sure what we developed was safe we tried to turn that into something that was consumable by other people to try and understand the way that we were then approaching it. So, you know, the way that we do is go, well, you know, how do you really do this? Well, at medical school, I guess, um, we would test people with cases and we'd get actors in and say, look, here's a case and you do your, um, your virus and so on. So we're like, well, can we do that again using the AI can we get actors and, and, you know, we did that. Um, we tried to add as much rigor as we could around it before we then, um, try to showcase that to people, um, and that's where we got to. Um, one of the challenges of doing it that way was that I think misinterpreted as then going, "Well, you've now you're now saying that AI is better than a doctor." Um, I think because that's an easy headline to write. Uh, the point about it is that we don't deploy our AI outside of it being in combination with being able to see a doctor. So the whole point about Babylon is, well, if I'm going to make healthcare more accessible, um I'm going to also have to make sure that I. I, I cover that by ensuring that it helps the clinical workforce get to the right patients at the right time um so uh, I think we missed the mark on being able to really explain that well and go that the whole point about the AI is to augment and supplement the way that we currently do things as opposed to say that you know you what know, well, AI is going to come over and take over the entire world and we won't need doctors again and um, I think we're quite a way off from of
0: that that's quite interesting from your perspective and i think you spoke about earlier in the story about the moving goalposts phenomenon where people well this is okay and then you go do that and then then they say oh no you need to do this um i guess from my perspective and from kind of like a medic's head-on the thought would be the proof in the pudding for the ai would be something like an independent randomized control trial like basically what babylon has done so far but independently done is there like is that difficult to do is that something on the roadmap like what's the thought behind that
1: so hopefully there'll be some more uh, publications coming out, and and actually we're we're really well published in AI journals and data science type journals. So um, you know, and of course you go to the website, you'll see that but the problem is that clinicians. I mean, you know, I can't read them. I do, I can't make sense of the maths. But the point is, the starting blocks we are pretty well covered with an academic rigor, um, which is well what we're doing is in that world is is right and proper. Um, translating that into clinical is you know like it's almost like a phase one trial before you get to clinical trials so you've got to go through that process right you can't just say well I've had this idea I'm going to go and test it on on you know in a clinical trial setting." and the difficulty we have is that, like I said because we're in combination with clinical services you can't really pull out the outcomes and this is a big challenge in healthcare Sort of globally is that we do absolutely want to drive towards better outcomes, but it's very hard to understand that it's such a complicated menu of things that can impact the outcome. To then pull it apart in any way that is meaningful um, is always open to challenge. So you can sort of go, well, like, I did it this way, and then people have been like, yeah, but you missed that because the same many confounding factors. Um, our view of it is is relatively uh, simple now: is going well. We know that what we're doing, we're delivering at scale. And every part of that, we're trying to capture the feedback. So, you know, we, we publish our feedback scores. If you, you can see what about our GP services in London and Birmingham, you can go in and, and see what patients say about that. Um, we, we've got some information that we're showing back with the NHS about saying, well, you know, do our patients that are using our services end up less in A&E or less in hospitals and, you know, we're getting some good green sheets of evidence coming through showing that actually they are and you know the ipsos mori report that came out last year um showcased that for some of our london population so we know we're on the right track um and our view is that eventually we think there will be a comparable body of evidence that somebody else independently can compare to another similar body of evidence to then prove that this is the way to go forward and um, i think it has to be somebody independent because I, I just you know, if we do it, I don't think it has any of the rigour that you would need. So I think it needs to be something independent. Um and all of that was before COVID. So and of course now you end up in the point again going back to that in a romantic world you'd have all of that stuff. But in a purely pragmatic world, you've got to do what you can to ensure safe, effective and personalised care is put in place quickly, which is what we've seen with with COVID. So for example, um you know it's very proud that we could go and help trained some clinicians in Wolverhampton that had never done telemedicine consultations really quickly when Covid struck because that we do thousands of appointments a day. So you know I think that the idea of well is it right to do telemedicine or not do telemedicine has gone away I think we can now prove that you know we're doing thousands a day and therefore we know that those patients are getting a good service and they're not coming to harm. So now can we extend that because you know we need to to get on and protect the front line in this case, or or develop services so that we can be more sustainable for the future.
0: That's, yeah, that's really interesting. And one of the points you brought up about how you're constantly uh, taking in your users' feedback and evolving based on that, is there an issue with validation where, so say if Babylon did have an independent um, RCT in 2018, by 2021 you've evolved so much and the AI has changed so much that that doesn't, Really have that much say in that, and then are you going to have to think about having different models of validation that we haven't seen before?
1: Yeah, and you know um, that's exactly. It. I mean, the problem. So we we work on you know if there's an if there's a problem highlighted, we fix it instantly, as you would with technology. Um, it's not like you have to send out an alert and hope that all the doctors read it. And you know, so there's something about you can fix stuff instantly. Other than that, we work on six and twelve week sprint cycles. So every six to 12 weeks, you know, everything changes. So it's very hard to compare, like you say, 2018 to, to what we're doing right now. Um, in terms of the validation, you're right. I think that the core part for us is, um, so the ideal is you validate the entire service as a whole. Um, and we are gunning to try to get that, or they like we talked about, that's really hard to do. And so, you know, the next best thing is making sure that every individual component part is validated as best as we can. Um, And I I think people are always surprised when if you saw the safety reports that go into almost every single thing that we do, um, I don't think they're comparable. I mean, they are just better than anything I've seen in in the general NHS services. You know, if if I change a process at Frimley, there's no way it goes through the same validation processes that we've had to do for for Babylon and the reason that we do it for Babylon is because we know that we're leading the charge on this so we think it's our duty to say well you know we've really robustly dug into this so um and we have some of the resource and capability to do it so we're able to go back and review video consultations as an example so we can do that and say well we know the right things happened. we're able to communicate with patients in different ways to know that they didn't come to any harm and you know we get feedback and all those things so you, you can you can start building up that body of evidence, but the way that we, we sort of validate it is any any single component. So let's say, say for example, we we're doing a paediatric flow for COVID through the symptom checking um, service. Uh, the amount of data that went into doing that and double checking. So, you know, we had teams of people saying, well, here's what you need to do. Um, when you look at it, we've got all of the evidence behind it to say, well, you know, the reason that we've done that is is this. And we can then change any of that at a time i think is i was really proud to be part of it and i think people don't see that they look at a chatbot and go yeah that's easy right you just choose the next question that's easy i would know how to do that Like if you could see how much effort goes into making sure that next question like i say is safe and effective making sure the wording to that question doesn't elicit any anxiety or give the wrong steer so there's something about documenting all of that that we do. So that's an example of taking point validation. And the validation process for that is then going up and getting okay, So there's a group of clinicians who've done that. Then we've ratified it with another group of senior clinicians before we release it to market. So that's point validation as opposed to being able to evaluate the whole service.
0: Throughout your career, have you had any habits or ways of approaching things that have helped get you to where you are?
1: Um <laughs> i'd sort of love to be able to say yeah no i got up really early and i read loads um and and the answer is i didn't do any of that i think the one habit that i would say that i had especially early on when i was thinking about this was um well actually two habits one was i saw helen bevan i don't know if you know helen bevan but like she's this amazing nhs leader um, and you should listen to everything she says and all the podcasts on the bit. So she, I saw her talk and she did this great talk about saying, you've got to define your story and um, almost don't worry about what the actual story is but make it easy for people to consume that story. Um, so she's like, cause you can change it, right? But but people don't want to see your thinking when you're going through it. So the point being was I created this little elevator pitch that was like, I want to be the chief executive of an NHS trust. And then when I went to talk to people, they'd be like, oh, I now know what bucket to put you in. So here's how I helped you. I I don't know if I do want to be the chief executive of an NHS trust. I definitely didn't know that back then, but it helped me frame the next step. So um, I've always been very careful to have a bit of a a short narrative. So people could easily put me into a a bucket to then hopefully get me to the next part. Um, And then the second habit was always trying to say yes to meeting people. Um, So, there's something about being really proactive about networking and getting through that, which then goes, if you've got that small story, I would say it took me, it took me five years of going to almost anything I could go to before somebody in the network that I was in said, oh, did you see that Aviva got this job and that might be useful? That might be something you're interested in. Um, And I think people forget that. So it wasn't like, you know, I searched for jobs and then this one came up. Um, So having that network is really important. And, you have to be very active at building that network. Um, my wife will say, I talk too much and networking isn't a challenge and blah, blah, blah. Um, but it, you really do have to get into that mindset of putting yourself out there um, and experiencing things that are scary and you know, going to events and, and stuff when you do feel like a real imposter. Um, so those would be my two habits, I think. One is working your story so people can and make it easy for people to know what you need from them. And then the second is really go and put yourself out there.
0: That's so interesting, just quickly what would the what would a format for a story look like that you would broadcast
1: i I think you need a beginning, a middle, and an end right so like i did, very simply it would be um so sorry I, think I did it here, so I identify as a pediatrician, so my quick story is I'm a pediatrician um the the say so you put me in a category of okay, I sort of know where you are, and um, it's lucky being a pediatrician because most people think you're super lovely um and really nice and um, which uh you know maybe you, didn't it um the second part of that is then the meat of it and you know what i'm really looking for is um this so in the event of uh, i'm looking to do a leadership journey for my career hence saying look i, I think i might want to be a chief executive of an nhs organization um i wonder what the next steps are and then the final bit is having that call to action so you know don't forget to ask how can how can you help me? Or what your question is say, say my story would be like, I'm a pediatrician. I want to do this. Um, would it be okay if you connect me up to, or do you think there are any roles in your organization that might fit for me? Or do you have any recommendations about what I should do next? You, you know, like say, don't forget to ask for what you want. And if you can put that into something that is, you know, a couple of minutes long. um, I always found most people will give you 10 minutes. Right. So and am doing this podcast i really enjoy seeing doctors and um supporting doctors getting on but you know most people will give you 10 minutes if you if you ask them for it but what you can't do then is spend nine and a half minutes explaining all of your challenges about well should i or shouldn't i need medicine Will i do that you know so you do have to work hard at doing that you have to practice it in front of the mirror you know to get it into three sentences takes years um you've got to practice it at dinner parties etc and be comfortable with that narrative Uh, and then once you've done that the questions of and I always found in these five years of doing it I I don't think I ever found anybody that was then not able to say well here's the next thing for you to do be it you know you better go to that event that's what I'd recommend or uh, you should go meet this person I think that's where you can then start building out that network
0: so it's been kind of beneficial for you to be quite transparent with your goals and tell people
1: absolutely and I you know it's and I, It's quite scary to do because almost everybody you talk to will be like, "Why do you want to do that?" Like, you know, like especially when you're a doctor, they're like, "You like being a doctor, and being a doctor is good." Like that doesn't make sense. Like it's a lot easier for you to be a doctor, to just be a doctor. Um, like I think if you ask my parents, they probably just say, "Oh no, he's still a doctor." Like you know, it's just like well, we're, we're settled into that story. That's what he does, and, and again, I still identify to that. But um, my counters will be: it, it's really quite hard to work on that story, and you do have to really practice it because um you know helen bevan's talk was about going to dinner parties and telling people you're anything else you know and her example i think was like going to tell people you're an accountant and see how that makes you feel So there's definitely something about testing out a few stories before you commit to the one that you then want to go off and tell um because people's time is precious but people are desperate to help you so make it easy for them to say okay like, okay what is it you need for me to get to the next thing use your friends and your family to do the framing of that story Um, would be my my advice
0: I hope you enjoy that episode you can find Umang on LinkedIn at Umang Patel I'll include a link to that in the description and you can find all of my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk thank you